What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us again on Misunderstood. I'm Rachel Yucatel. So when I used to work in my past life in Las Vegas, I was the director of VIP operations at the largest and best nightclub in the world called Tao, which was in the Venetian. And part of my job was to cultivate a customer that meant bringing in bottle service customers that would typically spend, you know, $2,500 upwards to $10,000 a night, just to be part of the party, buy a table, be, you know, be spending money on crystal and alcohol, I eventually was able to cultivate clients um, that were the biggest, I mean, known around the world, the biggest in the industry were my clients and they were going up to $400,000 a night. The way they did that was buying the room crystals, but, you know, throwing money around, like doing crazy things. Well, I left in 2009 to go back to New York city, 2008, 2009. And right around then, uh, a guy used to start coming into Tao. His name was Joe Lowe, and he was known to be a, one of the biggest spenders. Uh, at, they called them whales. And he came in and he only went through the owners and he was one of the biggest clients spending millions of dollars. Anyways, why I'm telling you this is because there is a new documentary out on Netflix called Man on the Run. Man on the Run is about Joe Lowe. He is a fugitive wanted for his role now in the one MDB embezzlement scandal that led to Goldman Sachs entering its first ever guilty plea. Before he was wanted for this role in the scandal, Jolo more commonly uh, led a glamorous life that included paying to party with celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio, dating supermodel Miranda Kerr, Paris Hilton, um, paying for the company of Kim Kardashian. So this is a crazy scandal that is about a guy from Malaysia, but crossed over here into the Hollywood lifestyle, his funds, what you guys don't know is it funded Wolf of Wall Street. So you're going to hear all about this in the interview that I have with the director and writer. His name is Cassius Kim. And he, he's like the most interesting guy, because if you look on Netflix and you're looking at this documentary, it might not strike you as something you'd be interested in just because it does seem to be a lot of information on the Malaysian government and, you know, hedge funds and all these different things going on. It is so interesting. Anyways, I had him on. I thought it was a great conversation. I really want you guys to listen to it. Cassius had unprecedented access from journalists that first questioned the fund to the investigators that helped crack the case. He even uh, sits down with the prime minister, 
um, of Malaysia and gets an exclusive interview. It's so good, you guys. So I want you to listen to this unbelievable story of greed, power, and mystery. Um, the, you've got to see the documentary. Again, it's called Man on the Run. Um, if you haven't, maybe press pause, go watch it on Netflix, and then you will totally be into this interview because Cassius answers a lot of unanswered questions from the documentary. But please, if you like what you're listening to, leave a review give us five stars, or if you don't want to give us five stars, that's fine too. But, you know, interact with us. I want to know what you're thinking of these guests, how you're liking them, um, who you want to see us have on. So anyways, I'm very excited to bring you a new topic um, and uh, see what you think. So enjoy my interview with Cassius Michael Kim. Thank you so much for being here on Misunderstood. I watched Man on the Run last night on Netflix. It was so good. I'm so happy that you're here, and I'm so happy everybody gets to hear more about this documentary that you did. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So my first question is, what drew you to this story? I know from even watching the documentary, um, a lot of people in Malaysia weren't even familiar with Joe Lowe's name. And a lot of people in America wouldn't be familiar with that name. I, of course, was because I was involved in the nightclub industry. We can get into that later. But um, so for me, it was fascinating. But it's a fascinating story regardless. But what what turned you on to this topic? Well, I think what was hard for me to really comprehend at first when I first learned about the story is just despite the huge nature of it and the vast scope of it, like not just the amount of money stolen, but all the various places in our society that the scandal reaches out to, uh, how few people in America even knew about it. You know, like it felt like everyone and their mother watched The Wolf of Wall Street when it came out. But how many of those people were aware that it was financed by stolen Malaysian money? Um, and then the list goes on and on. You know, Goldman Sachs is involved, international politics, but just the Q rating, if you'll call it that for what the average American person knows about this was almost zero, despite coverage from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, a best-selling book. Um, and so many people had yet to be held accountable. Right. So it just felt like a great story to kind of sink into and grab a hold of and try to tell the, the truth of it to as many people as possible. So for people listening that might know not know what we're talking about, can we lay this out a little bit for them? Explain who Joe Lowe is. Yeah, uh, Jolo, uh, birth name Lotek Joe, is a Chinese-Malaysian businessman, so to speak. Um, he created this thing called 1MDB, which stands for One Malaysia Berhad Development, and it's just a fancy name for a sovereign wealth fund uh, underwritten by the government of Malaysia. And through his personal connections with the former prime minister of Malaysia, Najib Razak, he was able to come into control of this multi-billion dollar sovereign wealth fund designed to invest Malaysian taxpayer money into infrastructure projects, uh, the development within the country, uh, investments for the country to uh, accrue interest and 
investment money um, from excess funds that the government might have. But unfortunately, unlike the Middle Eastern countries where sovereign wealth funds really first began and took off, where they have unlimited funds, uh, Malaysia wasn't in that boat. So when they created this Malaysian sovereign wealth fund, uh, the government had to accrue a lot of debt to finance it. Mm -hmm. um, and instead of investing this debt money, uh, they stole it. And they started to spray it around the world and parties and paying for celebrities to hang out with them and ridiculous luxury goods and so forth. And the scandal stretched on for many years. And the list of things they wasted this money on, <laughs> uh, it's kind of endless. Right. So let's talk about that aspect, because that's where sort of Americans' ears perk up. Um, so he was paying loads of money, not only in nightclubs to, you know, buy alcohol and do the thing you're supposed to do in a nightclub, but he was paying to be in the company of some of the, you know, hottest celebrities, I guess you would say. And at the time that was Paris Hilton, it was Kim Kardashian, it was Leonardo DiCaprio. And then that turned into funding. It was Jamie Foxx. And then it turned into funding the Wolf of Wall Street, like you said, which was, which is crazy because I still think even though the documentary is out, people don't get that. I think that's such a like <laughs> crazy thing because that movie is about greed and, you know, all like wealth and excess and gluttonous behavior sort of. And that's what his life was. And um, I, I think it's incredibly interesting. And I think Americans need to watch it because it's so interesting and spans over things that are not going to make your eyes glaze over. I think when some people hear Malaysian government or funds or, you know, corruption in Malaysia, that to them is like too much, you know, it gets a little complicated, but there are so many things that come into our country. And then there's a lot of parallels too, which I want to get into later about, um, you know, Najib and someone like, Donald Trump, who's running, you know, and getting himself in some sort of situations and trouble. So um, I want to ask you, like, when you were thinking about doing this story, I was really curious about how it unfolded to you. So I'm assuming that you you thought about doing it and you thought it would be a great story because you were going down one road and then what you came across, because you got access to some amazing people here. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like peeling an onion, right? Like you just kind of have to take it one layer at a time and see what you're left with. And also, it just starts by doing outreach. Obviously, you know, there's a little end montage of all the people who wouldn't speak to us. Yeah. But luckily, we did have a lot of people that would speak to us, and they kind of form the backbone of the story itself. Um, and as those people, those people that we don't see on camera, though. Um, were you getting a lot of people speaking off the record as a source to tell you about what was happening, let's say, in the nightclubs or wh whatever, with different aspects of your story? We definitely had people who would only speak to us off camera. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that can be helpful to kind of flesh out our conception of what happened in various settings. But at the same time, you know, documentaries are the visual medium, so... It's hard for me to really utilize that, especially because so much of the information I had was coming directly from the, the journalists who covered the story and who could kind of relay to me the layers of complexity and the layers of people they spoke to. Mm -hmm. um, but it just it, it never ceased to boggle my mind, the little tidbits out here from various people, whether it's in Hollywood, whether it's in the nightclub scene, whether it's in the government sphere of things in America or Malaysia, um, the level of influence that Jolo and his conspirators were able to purchase, really, it boggles the mind. 
Yeah. Um, it's such a complicated story as a filmmaker. How did you go about, you know, laying out the facts so that the average person could go and watch this and understand that? Well, I think the easiest place for an American audience to start would be with the celebrities. Um, you start with the flashy names, you start with the Hollywood aspect of it, and you kind of dig a hole from that area that mm -hmm. people kind of journey with you into. Um, there are aspects of the story, as you mentioned, that are very complicated and probably could make people's eyes glaze over, but are also essential, essential to the story. You know, like we have to get into a little bit of Malaysian politics because so much of what happened involved um, the stability of this country's government, which was completely undermined by this scandal. Um, but, you know, when we were in post-production, I remember having to just like go into the edit for two weeks and rewrite the film backwards because it's so complicated. It's a fire hose of information. And I wanted to streamline that as much as possible for the audience, because if you really want it to be complicated, if you want to know exactly the mechanisms people use to steal the money, uh, there's a book out there that's very good called Billion Dollar Will. Uh, you know, there's newspaper articles, uh, but documentary is a visual medium. And I wanted to do what I could to make the information easily digestible, but also, you know, make it fun to watch. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we add humor, we add levity, we had, you know, fun graphics and mm. uh, also, also visually portray some of these places uh, in as uh, respectful and as beautiful a manner as we can. Um, so it's all kind of just, you know, th you throw that all in the pot and you cook it up for a little bit and. We try to present something that people will enjoy more than anything and learn something from. So what do you think um, Jolo's motivation was for all this? Do you think it was just to have wealth, to have power? Um, because it seems like his downfall was, you know, his need to show off and to, to be so out there with this public profile, no? You know, I'm no psychologist, so I'm not really sure what motivated him, but a lot of people have guessed that at first it started out just for recognition, but also the celebrities were a means to an end, right? Like he's constantly trying to raise money while also stealing money. Mm -hmm. So when he's around these other very rich businessmen, having these A-list celebrities around is very useful for him. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a way of attracting investment. So those kind of go hand in hand. But also later on in the scandal, as he starts to make inroads with the American government, he gets invited to the Obama's Christmas party. Right. He starts making contact with the Republican National Committee. He enlists Trump's right-hand man to raise money for him or to protect him from the Department of Justice. It really goes beyond just notoriety and becomes a need to influence activity on the global level, which right. he gets very close to achieving but, you know, what I think brought him down isn't really this need to be out there. It was this kind of nihilism about the way he did things. There was no end game. If you look at someone like Bernie Madoff, um, this scandal lasted decades because they're stealing money with one hand and giving some of it out with the other so that they right. can perpetuate the scandal and to perpetuate the fraud. But with Jolo and his conspirators, there was no there's no evidence that they ever tried to paper the holes that they're digging because at any opportunity that they had to kind of fill the losses and keep this thing going for a few more years, uh, he would instead buy a $250 million super yacht when right. <laughs> just like covered up some of these losses. Um, so there was no attempt on his part to ever perpetuate the fraud. It was just uh, this 
giant, massive hole that he could never fill. Like, he was always trying to get more and more and more. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the, oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. February is the month of love. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you know how in love I am with today's sponsor, OneSkin. Most skincare routines only deliver superficial results, but with OneSkin, you get a scientifically proven treatment that improves the appearance and health of your skin at the cellular level. What's their secret? OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide It's the first ingredient scientifically proven to reduce the buildup of cells that contribute to skin aging, which means with one skin, you are left with healthier, younger looking skin with fewer lines and wrinkles, reduced age spots, and a stronger natural barrier, which is especially important this time of year. Your skin does so much for you. Return the favor with one skin. Believe me, you will not be sorry. For a limited time, our listeners will get an exclusive 15% off their first one skin purchase using the code understood when you check out at oneskin.co that's one stick one skin got co invest in health and longevity with your skin with one skin so i've been using this now for two months i'm not kidding when i tell you how many people have dm'd me that have used the code and that have gotten products saying that they absolutely love everything about it i love everything about it i now use the body lotion i use the eye cream i use the face cream i actually now use the tinted moisturizer for the sun i think it's spf 30 um i gave for christmas i actually gifted my 78 year old mother um uh, the product, it was the travel pouch and she uses all the product, even the face wash. I use the face wash too, actually. And she keeps asking how she can get more. <laughs> so, um, people are loving this. I I'm not kidding. When I say I get uh, an overwhelming amount of DMS on this product in particular, um, that people absolutely love it. You have to try it. You guys, one skin is more than skincare. It's about skin longevity, targeting the root causes of aging to help you look and feel your best at every age. Get started today with 15% off code using code understood at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co, O-N-E-S-K-I-N.co with code understood. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. It's time to expect more from your skincare routine. Invest in the health of your skin with OneSkin. Right, so the one MDB fund was the it was supposed to benefit ordinary Malaysians, right? I mean, so are you saying that at no point did the Malaysians feel the effects of getting something out of this? I mean, it was all for um, not, it was all, you know, just terribly spent. Well, I don't think it's absolute, but I'd say definitely a vast majority of the funds that were earmarked for development 
and infrastructure were just stolen. Uh, right. There are, I think, a couple of things that ended up happening, maybe like a highway or a lone hospital. But we're talking about sums upwards of $5 billion uh, in Malaysia, especially that should buy you more than just one highway and one hospital. Right. So what's interesting about this is he spans, like you said, through all of the world. He has access to people in Saudi Arabia, to all the way to America and to our through our presidents. Right. Um, but what I think is interesting and you cover it in your documentary is that no one really takes the time to say, well, wait a minute, who is this guy? Where, you know, where's the evidence that that this is real? Where is all this money coming from? And, you know, especially in the world that I used to be in, in the nightclub industry, um, it, it would not benefit those nightclub owners to even ask those questions because at the time, um, you know, they were in the throes of making more and more money on a nightly occurrence. And if they had a, a whale, as we, we called them, and like this book is written, um, you know, we didn't ask where that money came from. I mean, when I left, I moved to Vegas, I opened up Tao, um, I worked with Noah and Jason, and our job was to bring in these clients. And whale is a term that um, came up, you know, maybe a year or two into what we were doing in the nightclub in Vegas, because it hadn't really been cultivated, it hadn't been created yet. And one of my clients um, was the first person to start spending that kind of big money. And at the time, it started with 80,000 a night, then it was 150,000, then it went to 250, then it went to 450. Everyone knew his name from the places that we owned in New York to the Hamptons to, you know, St. Barts and then back to Vegas. And then all the business owners wanted that one client. Um, now, I left Vegas right as Jolo became the new client. And he didn't even go through someone like me. I was the director of VIP operations. He would go through the owners. But I, I can guarantee you no one was asking where that money was coming from because they we're just excited that he would be in the room spending and having other people spend, right? Because people would be so excited that someone like Joe was there. So they would want to be there on that night. They would want to get to know him. Um, so, and it behooved people to, to have him in their presence. So I'm sure no one wanted to even ask those questions. Well, is it, is it true that Jason and Noah bought Jolo a Lamborghini for his birthday because of all the money he spent? I mean, I have heard that. I wasn't there, so I cannot confirm or deny. But um, yeah, I mean, that is something that would happen because people would, it was like, you know, they would give back to their clients in whatever way, shape or form. And Jolo was definitely one of the biggest um, clients that they had that helped them help their business you know, profit like that. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't surprise me that one of the names at the end of your documentary is one of the owners of the nightclubs that does not want to talk because why would they want to talk, right? What's in it for, for them? And not that they have been paid off, but they made enough money that they don't even, they just want to wipe their hands of it, I would think. Well, I think that's what is really disgusting about this whole story. You know, there's the old joke. If you want to go to jail, steal a candy bar, if you want to become rich and famous, steal a billion dollars. Right. And at every level of this scandal, you see people turning a blind eye because the numbers are so big. Their faces get flushed red with greed and they'll turn the other way because they don't want to know where this money comes from. Right. Like you said, he wants to just act like it never happened. And this scandal, more than any other financial scandal, is filled with dozens of people, maybe hundreds of people who benefited from the largesse of this 
man, Joe Lowe, mm -hmm. who stole billions of dollars and then sprayed it around the world. So, of course, you know, a lot of people benefited. Um, right. And not just like crooked businessmen or shady nightclub owners, but even like the people that worked on his yacht who were actually just like blue collar workers. Uh, I know he, Jolo, helped finance like restaurants for some of these people, you know, because it means nothing to him. Mm -hmm. uh, when he would hang out with Leonardo DiCaprio, he would flip like $50,000 casino chips at random strangers. Right. Because this money meant nothing to him. Um, and, you know, Jordan Belfort, the actual wolf of Wall Street, you know, has a quote about this. They, he, they were at this massive party at Cannes that Jolo and Riza Aziz, his production partner, were throwing for their company, Red Granite. And Jordan Belfort turned to his friend and said, you know, they're spending money like they stole it. Mm. You know, people that actually work for this money, they don't spend it like that. But, you know, Jolo's the same guy who in San Tropez dropped $4 million in one night on Cristal. So. Right. Right. And there are men like that. And I know a couple of them that spent a lot less that, ha you know, declared bankruptcy, lost everything, <laughs> lost their family, their wives, um, but they're not on the run, so to speak. Um, okay. So if Goldman Sachs had not been involved, would the U.S. government have intervened in this fraud, do you think? Uh, I do think that just because the numbers were so vast and really the, the legal precept that the U.S. involvement is based on is that because so many of these transactions were conducted in U.S. dollars and routed through U.S. financial institutions. And it's not just Goldman Sachs, because Goldman Sachs only got involved to facilitate a number of bond sales on behalf of 1MDB, and they really got their hands dirty. I'm talking like they knew what was happening. They took these bonds. Goldman Sachs bought the bonds themselves and then sold them aftermarket, which contravenes like normal investment bank practice. And they also charge 10 times the fees that they typically would. Um, but aside from that, you know, Jolo had an American lawyer. Uh, they were routing their money through accounts in Deutsche Bank, Chase, all these institutions. You know, we have a massive graphic in the film that kind of has a logo of all these institutions that worked with or benefited from these transactions. So I think the U.S. government had a lot of uh, incentive to get involved, not just from the geopolitical perspective, but because... Joe Lowe and his conspirators were just making a mockery of the U.S. financial system to conduct their money laundering. So can you explain to everybody how this started to be, how it started to crumble, how the government started to close in on Joe Lowe and some other people who are now in jail? But how, how did it all start to crumble? Well, you know, I think it first started when... <laughs> Uh, Claire Rucastle Brown, who runs the Sarawak blog and was one of the first journalists to kind of sniff out that something was amiss, uh, she noticed that the wife of the former prime minister, Rosma Manzor, who was a very notorious figure in her own right, uh, sort of an Imelda Marcos, but in Malaysia, uh, she was proposing that every school child in Malaysia, which is a very conservative Muslim country, uh, be mandated to watch The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, <laughs> now, if you've seen The Wolf of Wall Street, you'll you'll realize how inappropriate that is. For, totally uh... inappropriate, yeah. <laughs> but so, you know, Claire starts doing some digging, and already there was smoke about Jolo, his involvement. Uh, where is this money going? Because the 1MDB fund's been operating for a few years now, and no one's seeing any benefits. No one's seeing any tangible results. So Claire's doing her journalist thing. She's digging through the Wolf of Wall Street. 
And she looks at the red carpet photos, and who's there on the red carpet with Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese, but Jolo and Riza Aziz, the stepson of the former prime minister of Malaysia, Najib Razak. And that's mm-hmm. what the, the lights went off in her head. And then okay. she starts doing some digging. And through her investigations and the investigations of Hokai Tot and his staff at the Edge Malaysia, of, which is kind of the equivalent of the Wall Street Journal of Malaysia, mm-hmm. uh, they discover that the first big venture that 1MDB undertook with Petro Saudi, a London-based petrochemical company, um, was actually a complete sham. Um, the the so-called prince who had helped set up Petro Saudi uh, was like the 37th prince of Saudi Arabia and was lending his name. And these energy assets in Turkmenistan that Petro Saudi purportedly owned were all kind of fraudulent. Uh, this man, who's, this gentleman who's very high up at Citibank and other big American financial institutions, was paid $250,000 to give this valuation of these energy assets uh, without even looking at them, without even visiting. And he, there's you know emails where he's asking Jolo's friends, you know, oh, what do you want me to value this for so we can show this fake paperwork to the government of Malaysia? And the government of Malaysia deposited a billion dollars into this joint venture with Petro Saudi, and immediately $700 million of it was diverted to Jolo's accounts. Mm-hmm. And that's when the partying started. And <laughs> you can literally trace that. Jolo's right-hand man posted on Facebook, I felt the earth shake the day that the $700 million was deposited to their accounts. And then they went on an epic spending and gambling spree in Vegas shortly thereafter. Right. So this kind of behavior continued. And as you kind of pull the thread, uh, Claire and other journalists were able to receive documents that established this paper trail of the story I just told you mm-hmm. through a whistleblower named Xavier Justo. And with that, the Wall Street Journal got involved, the New York Times got involved, and the Malaysian government got involved. And that was kind of the beginning of the end of it, although there were many more parts because then the counterattack from the Malaysian government was that Najib Razak, the then prime minister, uh, arrested all his enemies and shut down all the investigations into him which is what ultimately also necessitated the participation of the Department of Justice. Right. So that's where it gets interesting. And also, I know in your documentary, there's a, a big part where you talk about how Najib gets over $600 million deposited into his personal account. And he says there's no strings attached. This was just because of a relationship. And I think that that rang a lot of bells for people. And that that's where people start to question his intent and, you know, uh, association with Jolo, right? Yeah, so <laughs> I think that should always set off alarm bells when the leader of any country receives $680 million from some shady bank account to his personal accounts. And yeah. now he's saying that that was a gift from the late King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, which is very convenient because King Abdullah is yeah. no longer with us and can't attest to his role in this. Mm-hmm. But... Actual forensic accounting has shown that the money originated from Jolo's accounts. Right. Um, a question I had when watching your show, you know, you guys talk about um, Jolo and his past and how he went to a private school and a lot of the contacts that he has later in life become important to him. And that's how he kind of got where he is. But who was he before, you know, his association um, with Najib? Like, who was this guy? It almost seemed like he came on the scene out of nowhere right when 1MDB um, started. 
Well, I think he was uh, he was just a guy trying to find his place in the world, as you know, as common as that sounds. But because of where he was educated and the kind of places he grew up in, uh, he knew that he had to kind of penetrate these layers of uh, where the wealthier concentrated. You know, he attended the Harrow School in England, which is one of the most exclusive uh, boarding schools out there. And then he went to the University of Pennsylvania, uh, like someone else who's very famous in America. Uh, but that's where he met all these people. He met like the Prince of Jordan, or he went to he met the former prime minister's son in London while he was attending you know boarding school. And you know he made more contacts in the University of Pennsylvania. But these are all people he met who he then enmeshed in his scandals going forward. Right, right. And because he already came from a moderately wealthy family in Malaysia, he was able to utilize that to then enmesh himself with the Najib Razak family, who were also on the come up, because at the time that he was attending school, Najib Razak was a defense minister. But because his father had been one of the first prime ministers in Malaysia, it was almost preordained that Najib Razak would become a prime minister in his own right. And I think Jolo could kind of see that coming. So, you know, when all this stuff is happening, Jolo is very young. He's like in his mid-20s, late 20s. So it wasn't even like he was this fully formed person who just appeared out of nowhere. He's just a young man who saw a, a way to penetrate the layers of the wealthy and kind of found the shortest way to do it. Yeah. What I do find interesting is I've seen him give speeches where he talks about how he's part of a family that for 70 years they've been, <laughs> um, you know, donating excess amounts of money to all these, you know, uh, communities. And I, I'm shocked. Like if I went on a spree talking about stuff like that, my mom would be like, wait a minute my daughter and you know we haven't been doing this for years like what it just seems odd to me that you never hear about his family you don't hear about people that knew him growing up being like wait a minute he was just a bullshit artist and no one knew anything about him and his parents just don't speak english and don't even know that this is going on like that's what rang in my head i thought it was odd you don't see all these people um corroborating his story well, I mean, I think if, you know, if we were out of Malaysia, we would be more aware of it, right? So, like, his family is involved in lawsuits with the government where they're trying to take things back from them that Jolo purchased for them mm-hmm. with stolen money. So, you know, his father was, like, a moderately successful businessman, but they're not like the Rockefellers or anything. Um, but Jolo, once he had all this stolen money, these billions of dollars that he had to kind of rationalize and justify he retroactively changed his family story by saying that he was the secret heir of this billionaire fortune, when in actuality, he's just creating a cover story. And, you know, his parents are kind of in on the whole thing. So they're kind of staying mum, right? Because they're benefiting. He's clearly funneling money to them and his siblings. Uh, his brother, Jolo's brother, was one of his you know key players in this whole scandal. So, I mean, this is really a family-wide scandal. And, of course, it's to their benefit to kind of stay quiet so they don't really blow the cover of this bullshit story he's telling the world about how his family's been donating tens of million dollars to charity for generations. So now that you bring that up, though, you know, Jolo is still on the run um, and he has not been caught. You know, I'm surprised that the government hasn't put pressure on his family or on people that are, um, you know, not necessarily implicated and in jail yet. But um, to get his whereabouts, to find out where he is, because do you actually think he's not speaking to these people? Do you not think that he's someone is funding him in some way or he's funding them? 
Well, I think uh, my sources tell me that it's most likely that he is hiding out in China uh, mm-hmm. and is being protected by the Chinese government. Uh, towards the end of the 1MDB scandal, uh, the Chinese government got involved in an effort to paper over some of these losses on behalf of Najib Razak in exchange for some rights to sovereignty uh, in the Yellow Sea in that related region. So the then prime minister was actually giving up like sovereignty of his sphere in exchange for the Chinese government giving him money to make him uh, able to kind of perpetuate the fraud a little bit longer. But also Jolo, through his involvement, knows where all the bodies are buried. So, uh, so do you I'm think told, that doesn't have an end life where China's like, all right, we're done hiding? No, it. absolutely. I think it does. I just don't know when that and, you know, I don't know when his expiration date is. But you yeah. know, as of now he's being ferried from safe house to safe house in like Macau, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, uh, him and his family. So, you know, Joel is married now and he has kids. Um, so but like every few weeks, uh, Chinese intelligence will take him to a new location. Uh, and keep him out of the spotlight. You know, last year, some crowdsourcing uh, resulted in people sending in some photos from Disneyland Shanghai that were supposedly Joe Lowe and his family. But, uh, you know, he stayed off the radar for a long time. He certainly wouldn't respond to any of my emails, which was a shame. Yeah, well, that is a shame. (laughs) You would think somebody with that kind of ego would want to tell their story or, you know, have some sort of narrative. I would yeah, think. absolutely. And I think uh, that shows you kind of the level of control he's probably under right now. Right. Um, but I, I don't think he's dead. Some people have hypothesized that he's dead, but there are too many, I think, moving targets and loose strings still. And people connected to him uh, who I think would be aware if he was no longer with us. And I'm pretty right. sure. How do you think he's funding his his living right now, though? Because, I mean, I'm assuming they've closed all his bank accounts or repossessed them, whatever. I'm pretty confident this guy's got at least a billion dollars, if not more, squirreled away. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of money unaccounted for. Even now, investigative journalist friends of mine will tell me anytime there's a massive black market money laundering scheme or any kind of like shady investment scheme, there is one MDB money being routed to it in an effort to clean it up or to finance it because so many people got large chunks of the pie. I mean, yeah. if you kind of divide up $5 billion, that's a, that's a lot of money. Yeah. So you you talked about this before. Who had to return stuff like the tangible stuff that went back? Um, I know that uh, Miranda Kerr had to return jewelry and there was a famous crystal piano that I think a house was built around. So she couldn't even give that back. Is that true? Uh, So a wing of her house was built around this see through crystal grand piano. uh, And there was no way for the federal government to actually remove it without knocking down a wall. So they kind of just said, you know, you know. Wait, I, but I don't even get that. Like, were they dating? Why would she accept something like that? Who? Um, yeah. Why so, Miranda? That's so bizarre. So I guess he just randomly ran into her at New Wanjo Restaurant in Koreatown in Manhattan, uh, and they became friends. And yeah, they were dating. I have it on good authority that they were actually in a relationship for a long time, um, or you know, however long it lasted. And you know, he showered her with gifts, pink diamonds, millions of dollars for Valentine's Day. Uh, extravagant trips. Uh, so yeah, they're definitely an item. So she had to give back some of those. Yes. Things. And oh, Leonardo DiCaprio gave back, you know, I believe they, you know, Jolo bought him like a Picasso painting, uh, a Basquiat, because for a while, Jolo started just purchasing hundreds of millions of dollars of fine art, because that's mm-hmm. a great way to launder money. Because right. the valuations of these things are so subjective 
So if you can put in a bunch of money and now it's supposedly worth whatever, you can sell it for however you want it any much time because he doesn't care what kind of return he's getting on. It's all stolen money anyways. So I'm curious if if one of the items wasn't tangible, but it was, you know, alcohol purchased $4 million worth of alcohol or, you know, a $50,000 appearance fee to a Kim Kardashian, are those things demanded to be returned? Uh, you know what? I'm not so sure about that. I'm pretty sure the government probably had too much to chase down on this end. I do know like a lot of the tangible stuff, also like the profits from the Wolf of Wall Street, um, and then maybe some of these appearance fees that are traceable. I think that's the other thing, right? Like, you know, you have on people testify to what people were paid. How much of that do you have a paper trail for? And how much of that is able to be corroborated by the government to demand that money back? So I think those are kind of the roadblocks you run into. Yeah. Also, I know with um, in nightclubs, when we used to <clears throat> pay for appearances, it came through the club. So I don't know that he was actually paying you know, to have Paris Hilton directly, it could have come from the, the club. Mm, yeah, well. <clears throat> also, Red red Granite, can you talk about that a little bit? They settled with the government for $60 million. Yeah, so Red Granite was the production company that Jolo created with Riza Aziz, the former, uh, I mean, the current stepson of the former prime minister. And they financed The Wolf of Wall Street. They financed Dumb and Dumber 2, uh, among other notable features. And it was all built on a house of cards. It was all financed by stolen Malaysian money. And when that was found out, oh, and how could I forget uh, the American producer and former Paris Hilton bagman, Joe McFarland. So the, this trio created this company, Red Granite. Jolo was obsessed with red. Um, he, you know, the Chinese consider it a symbol of fortune, I think, color of fortune. And yeah, they financed these movies. They actually were able to put some stuff out there. But of course, because it was all funded by stolen Malaysian money, the government was able to seize all the profits from it. And then the con the con company itself is kind of defunct. Right. Um, I want to talk about Najib for, for a second. What went through your mind when the prime minister agreed to sit down for an interview? <laughs> I thought uh, that was pretty great that you had that at the end of the documentary. Yeah. I mean, look, I just, this, this is what I told everybody, even the people that wouldn't speak to me. Um, this is a chance to set the record straight from your perspective. You know, do you want someone else to tell your story or do you want to tell the story yourself? And I would offer that opportunity to anyone involved in this case. You know, um, I'm certainly not trying to uh, put my thumb on the scale. Like I want people to tell the story and then I will construct the film from these people's stories. But I think a lot of people would rather just let sleeping dogs lie. And so I was very glad that Najib was willing to come on camera and sit with me. Um, you know, we spoke for four hours um, and, you know, people can see for themselves what he says. But um, now he's trying he's been trying to ban the movie uh, in Malaysia. Um, and he actually recently had. So Najib was sentenced to jail and then he spoke to me while he was out on bail. But shortly after our interview in 2022, uh, he was sent to prison. Now, about two weeks ago. Uh, the Royal Pardon Board of Malaysia commuted his sentence to six years from 12 years. And I believe he'll be eligible for parole in the next like 18 months. Wow. So this whole thing is ongoing. The corruption is vast and it involves a lot of the people in the movie. And we're still seeing kind of the effects of it play out in real time. So I'm actually very curious to see how this all ends up. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a crazy place, Malaysia, but also, as you mentioned before, a lot of parallels to here. 
Yeah. So, and I want to talk about that because there are similarities to Trump. His popularity, Najib's, kind of has not wavered, um, even though there was all this corruption um, and, you know, this talk of, you know, that he is obviously guilty, but then when he speaks, he doesn't see it that way, obviously. Um, He's accused of fraud um, and, you know, he was still running for an election, right? Is that is that what happened? No, so when we were out there, he was actually campaigning on behalf of his party. So his party, okay. Bersan National, has been, was the ruling party in Malaysia for 65 years since the inception of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a majority Muslim country and it's a majority conservative party. So it's been one party rule in this so-called democracy for a very long time. So even when he was out on bail, as you mentioned, He's one of the most popular politicians in Malaysia. Yeah. So he's out there in the streets campaigning. And we're embedded with his crew for the first few days we're in Malaysia. And we're seeing these adoring crowds. And this is during lockdown. This is during COVID. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing tens of thousands of people in the streets. Although, to be fair, a lot of them are paid. So, that, you know, pay to play is a real thing around the world. I think Americans kind of lose their sense of it. Because even in America, pay to play was a real thing back in the 60s and 70s. But it's kind of died down now. But all around the world, in second world, third world countries, politicians are con- constantly paying people to show up to events, pay people to vote. And Najib himself is notorious for this because he's actually one of the things he's accused of is stealing one MDB money to pay Malaysians to vote for him to get the vote out. Um, so we're out there and we're seeing this guy and he's like greeted like a rock star, even though he's already been sentenced to these charges. And then he has another trial going on and he's facing more prison time, but his popularity has only rose. And it was really difficult to escape the parallel to Trump. Mm. Uh, because for us, like as an American crew in Malaysia, uh, the echoes of Trump are everywhere. This massive fraud, corruption, this guy who's facing jail time, but is consolidating his political power at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, even now, with him being sent to jail, but then having his sentence commuted, uh, mm-hmm. the fallibility of the justice system and kind of what Trump's facing in his legal trials right now. Um, I don't know. It's like I, at a certain point a few months ago, I felt you know a lot better about the situation because Najib had been sent to prison. He had been held accountable. So many people in this story have not been held accountable. In fact, the only people that have been held accountable are like low-level bankers that really had nothing to do with you know, the mastermind of the fraud. Jolo's on the run. Most of his right-hand men are free. Um, but Najib was finally held accountable. But of course, that's right. all fallen apart in the last couple of weeks. Right. So actually, to to talk to that point for one second, what would it look like if Jolo was caught and got arrested? Would it bring this whole thing down or like what what would that look like if he was if he was finally found i think part of that depends on his willingness to discuss the particulars of the story because okay. no one knows the ins and outs better than him if he wanted to he could bring down a lot of people and i think that's another part of why he's out of sight out of mind um but yeah that would be i think the ultimate level of accountability uh for at least the malaysian government and for people who've been defrauded by this around the world. And it's not just Malaysian people. Like the Swedish pension fund was one of the biggest losers in this because they purchased the bonds from Goldman Sachs uh, through 1MDB and they lost almost their entire portfolio. And they're involved in a huge lawsuit against Goldman Sachs and 1MDB for that. But yeah, if Jolo was caught, it would just really take the cover off the case and we'd learn the real truth about who's responsible for what. But 
And so I kind of wanted to like wrap this up and explain to people why it's so important, because I think it sounds like people are like, well, no one really got hurt. And it's not like somebody was really, you know, people got uh, money stolen from them and who really cares. But the point is, is that I think it started with something that became about greed, but then that, that is able to influence powerful people and countries. And it's been evident that those are the people now involved and that can sway elections. It can sway powerful decisions. And that's where the danger comes from. Am I right about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the most difficult things about financial fraud is identifying who the victims are. And that was a big part of what the story we were trying to tell was. That's why we went out to the streets of Malaysia and we talked to the average Malaysian person, you know, I think the average Malaysian person makes less than like $20,000 a year, but that's the average. A large part of the country makes a lot less, and there's endemic poverty all over the place. And these are the people Najib and Jolo were stealing from. These are the people whose lives uh, they've you know, furthered the misery of because they now have like more taxes to pay, and the Malaysian people are now on the hook for $11 billion of debt for the next 40 years. So this isn't just like this gen generation of Malaysians. It's the next generation of Malaysians who are paying for Jolo's exploits. Basically, he put them on a credit card and now they're paying the bill. But as you mentioned, you know, Jeff Sessions, when he was the attorney general of the Department of Justice under Donald Trump, was in negotiations to drop the case against Jolo in exchange for a Chinese dissident. Like, these are high-level machinations happening just to protect a criminal, uh, a pretty low, you know, a guy who's doing a lot of crime, but, I mean, it's financial fraud, right? And to protect him, we're willing to give up other assets that we have, and it becomes a geopolitical nightmare because right. now, as you mentioned, like, very important people are getting involved, very wealthy people, very powerful people, and those things should never be involved in this game that— Someone like Jolo is playing with Najib Razak. Yeah. Um, what has the reaction uh, to the documentary been? You mentioned that Najib has been trying to get the documentary removed. Um, have you heard from other people? Yeah, you know, it's uh, there's been a steady stream of people who've uh, re reacting to the doc, and it's been really uh, heartwarming to see, especially the reaction from people who feel like their voices are finally represented by this. Um, you know, all we're trying to do is just kind of tell the story of all the amazing people who uncovered this scandal, really. Like, you know, the film is built on the backbone of the journalists, the law enforcement officers, and the opposition politicians who really did the hard work of uncovering the story. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of whose stories we're trying to tell. And I'm really grateful to everyone who's watched and partook in the documentary because it's a really important story that more people should know about. But for some reason, uh, it kind of fell under the radar. You know, it's interesting. It still feels like the story is just ramping up. Like there's, it's not the end. This is just the beginning. Your story is wetting people's appetite to understand the basics. And I feel like we're going to hear more when Jello is caught, when Najib gets out of prison. Like there is going to be a lot more things unfolding. A lot of people in America might be implicated that aren't yet, or maybe they are on behind the scenes that we don't know yet and are cutting deals. I don't know. But like, I feel like the story uh, isn't at the end yet at all. Do you feel that way? I think you're absolutely right. Uh, even when we were in post-production, so many things are happening. You know, as I mentioned, Najib went to prison as I'm cutting the movie. Uh, the opposition leader who I interviewed becomes the prime minister. Um, Tim Leisner, the Goldman Sachs envoy, 
is testifying against Roger Ng, who's the other Goldman Sachs banker, who was his best friend and underling. All these things are happening concurrent to the creation of the film. And we waited to make this story, to make this movie, because you need distance from the events to be able to tell the story. So, I mean, it's been like five years since everything happened, but even now, the tentacles extend so far that I think you're right. Like, we have so much more to see. Uh, so and also, more. yeah, and you had mentioned the the wife. Was it Najib's wife that um, when they raided the home had had, um, was it millions or a billion dollars worth of shoes and, and bags? <laughs> um, I'm not so good with the valuation of shoes, but I know she has something like 300 Birkin bags. Yeah. Um, I think that's I think that's worth a lot of money. And I think so. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen her closet, but she must have been pretty pissed having them take that. All oh, away. I asked Najib about the Birkin bags. I was like, how do you explain having so many luxury goods in your apartment? And he had the audacity to be like, oh, those weren't bought with stolen money. Those were uh, those were gifts from other foreign leaders and their wives. They knew my wife liked Birkin bags. So like the king of Jordan would give us a Birkin bag. And Total bullshit, obviously, but, right. you know. Interesting. But now she, I saw from your documentary, she's been um, sentenced to 10 years as well, but she's out on bail or what? what's happening with that? Yeah, she's out on bail. And I think the entire status of all these charges against both her and Najib uh, kind of stand in the balance because there's so much happening right now. There's a lot of scuttlebutt that the current prime minister uh, subtly endorsed this wow commutation of Najib's sentence in an order to consolidate his political coalition, mm -hmm. uh, which would be a huge betrayal to his voters, right. uh, many of whom supported him because they wanted justice for Najib. Uh, so I think uh, everything is very tenuous right now out, out right. there. Um, do, you, do you ever worry for your safety? No. No. Okay. No. <laughs> um, and, my, you know, I, I just I'm curious in making this film, you know, did you learn anything that you want to share? Was it something that you were like, oh, I got to do more of these kind of documentaries and get um, a story like this told? Or were you like, I'm never doing this again? <laughs> well, you know, my background is in international production. So that came in really handy uh, having to navigate, you know, the multi-country shoot, especially during the lockdown, mm -hmm. um, I think. Honestly, going into it, I'd never been to Malaysia. I didn't know much about Malaysia at all, but I had to do a quick primer on just the country itself and learn so much about it. And I think, you know, the saddest thing for me is that there's so many nameless, faceless people in Malaysia who have suffered because of this, um, that people kind of gloss over. And that quickly became kind of one of the main things we wanted to showcase in the film, is that it's not just about Hollywood, it's not just about Wall Street. It's built on the backs of these people that, you know, the crimes were committed against. Right. And that's who we're trying to, you know, pay respect to, along with the people who uncover the story. Because between those two parties, there's a lot of people who put a lot at risk to make sure that this story got out. Mm -hmm. And if we just focus on kind of the flashy stuff, it's a little glib and we forget about, you know, there's people that were murdered. Now, there's a prosecutor in the district attorney's office in Malaysia who was murdered. Uh, after he, you know, a document was leaked to the press about a pending arrest warrant for the former prime minister. A lot of right. people paid the ultimate price. So I just wanted to make sure that we are able to put all that into context for the viewer and a, a fuller understanding of what's at stake and what all this stuff cost. Do you have any other projects coming up on the horizon for you? 
Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, we're uh, expanding into narrative filmmaking, so I'm actually uh, working on a few short projects right now, and hopefully get those out by the end of the year, and in negotiations with some other documentary projects. Okay, and I was just curious, um, are there any topics or people that are on your bucket list that you're like, that story is compelling, I want to look into this and maybe work on that? But I can't say that here. What if someone hears it and just beats me to the punch? I do have one that I really want to do, um, but um, I think I'll refrain from talking about it. Okay. All right. Well, if you ever get to it and you do it, you got to come back here and talk to us about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I would love to. All right. Well, everyone should see Man on the Run. It's out on Netflix. Where else can people find out more about you? Uh, you can hit me on Instagram, CassiusMK. You can also find my production company, thesmokingsection.us. Uh, yeah, hit me up. Say hello. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Misunderstood. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five-star rating and review. You can support the show by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Do you have ideas for the show or want to reach out? Email us at info misunderstood podcast at gmail.com. That's spelled M-I-S-S understood. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time. Misunderstood.